0: Good morning, everybody. So let me let me start our time together here with just a little informal poll. Uh, how many of you are looking forward to spending time with your family over the holiday? Okay. Oh, well, you can raise your hand. Sure. I was just uh, I just wanted you to think about it, but sure, that's great. Um, that's terrific. You know, preparing for the sermon this week. I read quite a few articles about stress and anxiety over the holidays because, as we know, some, one aspect that can be true of the holidays sometimes is we feel a lot of pressure. There's a lot of family dynamics at play. And sometimes the holidays can actually, as much as we want them to be a time of peace, peace on earth can be really full of a little bit of anxiety. So uh, speaking of family time, one author I read described what he called the holiday blues and holiday stress in one article. And according to him, holiday, the holiday blues is not being able to be with the ones you love over the holidays. Does that make sense? Anybody have idea, an idea of how he defined holiday stress? Being with, the ones the being with the ones you love over the holidays. That was how I described holiday stress. And the idea I found the most interesting was uh, an idea that was put forward by Dr. Michael Hurd. He wrote an article entitled, quote, why the holidays are so stressful for so many. And in that article, he suggests that a problem or the problem of holiday stress was tied to, of all things, hope. Now, when we talk about hope here, isn't that usually a positive thing? But he writes this, he says, Another reason holidays can be stressful is that so much hope is placed in them. Quote, it's my only chance to be happy all year long, so it's got to be pleasant. And this, he says, leads people, even ones who are not normally manipulative or imposing, to become this way in the desperate quest to squeeze at least a few days or weeks of happiness out of the whole year. Does that sound familiar? Maybe not to that extreme, maybe for some of you it is to that extreme. But his point ultimately isn't that hope is bad, but rather that misplaced hope is a major producer of stress. He says, essentially, if you aren't happy the whole year round, the holidays won't make up for it. And this year, as I talk to people, the people I know and the people I've had conversations with, it seems like... There's more anxiety, people are more anxious, and more hoping for a bright holiday to liven up what's been a difficult year than they ever have been before. And there's such a mix of emotions. Well, if that's you today, if you're feeling a little awkward this holiday season, if part of you feels cynical, but part of you really wants to engage, part of you is really hopeful that this can be a really uplifting time of the year, and part of you is like, ah, I don't even know if I want to. I actually think that angels, angels have something to say to you this morning. Angels. Now, what the angels are going to say, actually, let me tell you right up front, you've heard before. You've heard it a lot. Many of you have heard it your whole lives. Other of you Others of you, even if you haven't grown up in the church, you've seen it in popular culture. You've heard it in commercials. And there's a temptation, not on purpose, to let the words of what these angels are going to say just sort of slide right by you. But this morning, I want us not to do that. And I want us to think about what these words actually mean to us as individuals. Sound a little bit intriguing? All right, just a little bit? All right, well, let's go for it. Let's read the passage. This is our passage today. This is Luke chapter 2. This is the first 20 verses. It starts with a little history, a little background, and then gets into the story. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to, where, uh, went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Now, this is one of the most famous Christmas passages in the Bible. If you've ever watched or seen a Charlie Brown Christmas, anyone ever seen a Charlie Brown Christmas? Heard of that one? Then you've heard this story read, and Linus points to it as the real Christmas meaning of Christmas is how he points to it. And for that reason, the angels' proclamations here are so well known that they might slide right by you. I mentioned that earlier. But to help us take note, I want us to do a couple things. First, I want us to think about this story in its historical context. That sounds exciting, doesn't it? (laughs) Woo! Tell me some history, Brad. Put this in some context for me. But no, this will actually help, I think, bring some meaning to these phrases that you've heard, that you've seen on postcards, and you've seen on coffee cups, to kind of make them a little more real and have some significance to you. So I think it's helpful to know that this entire story and what the angels report about is really a commentary on who's in control. You know, last week we saw how Mary's was a song of revolution, right? And I told you I'm always skeptical of how Jesus is always a radical and a revolutionary. But if you read that song, it's hard not to get that idea. Well, these announcements this week aren't so much necessarily about revolution, but they're about who's the boss. They really are. So these three famous headlines from the angels we're going to look at, let's look at what they mean for you and why they make such a difference in their historical context. So first, a Savior is born. That's a big headline, yeah? That's a grabber, right? And of course, it's about Jesus being born, right? That is awesome. I'm not taking anything away from that, but that's not exactly what the angel said. The angel doesn't say, hey, guys, Jesus has been born. The angel says a Savior has been born. And that has a lot of meanings, but in its immediate setting, in the world that that statement is made, it's a very political statement. When we hear Savior, a lot of us, we think immediately internal. We think about our souls and our spirits. We think about renewal coming into our lives. We think about renewal in the outside world as well. But there's a context here where this is a political statement up and against the world that it's made in. You see, there was already, when the statement was made, a king in place. And it wasn't just any king. The person who was the emperor of the empire that Jesus was born into was one of the most successful rulers and kings that has ever walked the earth. At the birth of Christ, the entire Western world was being ruled by one of the greatest kings in history, a man named Octavius. Octavius or Octavian, and Octavian came to power after this period of unrest. So there was Julius Caesar, some of you probably heard of him, who was the first emperor of Rome, this empire that took over all the Western world, basically, and then he was assassinated and there was this unrest until Octavian came along, and he restored peace to the empire by defeating all of his enemies, basically, the last of which was a famous guy named Mark Antony. And he established himself eventually as the emperor of the Roman Empire. And he proved to be a very astute and wise governor. And the power and the spread of the Roman Empire increased during his reign. And he was such a good leader that his reign became, it got a name, a Latin name, Pax Romana, which means the peace of Rome. And what that refers to is during his reign, there was relative peace throughout the entire empire. And to emphasize his authority and his ability, he had the Roman Senate give him a special name. And this special title was Augustus, and Augustus means exalted and sacred. So this title, Caesar Augustus, that's the title, and that's the Caesar Augustus that's mentioned as the ruler at the very beginning of our passage. So there's your little historical tidbit. So Christ is born into a period of relative world peace, at least in the Western world. But if you read what people were writing at the time, they were miserable, unhappy. Epictetus is a historian from the period, first century pagan writer. He wrote this. He said, while the emperor may give peace From war on land and sea, he's unable to give peace from passion, grief, and envy. He cannot give peace of heart for which man yearns for more than even outward peace. And I think this is what, at least in part, the angels speak to. The best that human leadership can do will not be enough. You'll need more. We all need more. All power in this world, all power in this world is limited So when the angels appear, the news of a Savior is good news. The people of that time were acutely aware, probably as much as any society in history, that political peace and political power was not enough to bring the people what they really need. And I think that is helpful for you and I to remember during this season and these times where we live today. You know, right now I know from conversations that more than a few people in this room are not happy with the political direction of our country. And I don't want to minimize that at all, or the threat that many of you feel, or the resolve that you feel to stand for and with your friends who feel threatened. But I would like us to remember on another level that had Abraham Lincoln just won the election, he could not bring us the peace that we need. The peace of the heart that humanity grieves for takes the intervention of an outside force greater than any political hero it demands a savior it's bigger than what can be brought by one human to another even an accomplished powerful wise leader so it's no surprise it's no surprising that the angels declare to the shepherds peace on earth in the middle of pax romana a season of peace that the western world had never known before the angel's message is peace on earth you know sometimes when you get what you're hoping for that can be the most disheartening thing in your life when it doesn't fix all your problems when you get the promotion you want you get the job you want you get the car you wanted you get the relationship you wanted and when it's and you don't want to be alone with your own thoughts because when you stop running you realize oh I still feel this way, even though I got this that I thought I really wanted, and it's good, but dot, dot, dot. So it's no surprise then that angels come and they say to a world of Pax Romana, peace on earth. You're probably familiar with that headline as well, peace on earth. That's the one you're going to see on coffee cups. Christmas cards, billboards, everywhere this time of year. And honestly, I'm 100% cool with that. I'm not knocking with that. I love the fact that the coming of Jesus into the world in the Christmas season is associated with peace on earth. Who wouldn't be? That's amazing. But one thing I think that sometimes gets missed is what the angels actually say. They say, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. That's the part that gets edited. Peace on earth to those on whom his favor rests. So the proclamation of the angels was not a guarantee of peace on earth. It was peace on earth to those on whom his favor rests. It was this amazing proclamation of this incredible opportunity that was coming to earth. But it wasn't a promise or a guarantee that everyone would experience peace. And if you read through the scriptures, this is how peace is often described. This is something that Jesus taught. In the book of John, he's quoted as saying, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you'll have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So Jesus does promise things. But if you notice in that Passage, what he promises and guarantees is trouble. But what he says is an opportunity is peace. So that in me you may, M A Y, you might have peace. No guarantee. For in this world you will, W I L L, guarantee, have trouble. So the trouble's going to be there no matter what. And the peace is available but not guaranteed. Are you catching the difference? Peace often doesn't just hit you like you got hit by a semi-truck. It's something you pursue. It's something you are intentional about. It can. I'm not saying it can't. But it seems like, in general, it's something that may be true in your life as opposed to something that will. So how do we experience peace? Peace how can we be people on whom his favor rests well actually you might be expecting something really profound here as a response right here comes my seminary training my 8 point steps to how you yes you can obtain peace this holiday season get out your pens get ready for some subpoints cuz this is going to get complicated all right? And I'm going to throw down some Hebrew and Greek. You'll have no idea what I'm talking about. That's how good this is. (laughs) But the answer isn't Actually, it's not complicated. And you don't need a seminary degree to break it down. It's so simple. It's so simple that you see it in the Proverbs, you know, the part of the Bible that these are (laughs) sayings to live by. They're not meant to be broken down systematically and turned into deep theology. They're proverbs, they're sayings, they're pithy. How do you experience peace? Well, I think it's pretty clear who God favors in the Bible. Uh, James 4, it says this, it's quoting a proverb. It says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. God opposes the proud and shows favor to the humble. And we saw that last week with the story of Mary, and we see it this week in our story too. Who is favored in this story? On whom does the favor of God clearly rest? Well, I think you see that in Mary and Joseph. The favor of God is on them. They give birth, well, Mary mostly, to Jesus. And if you think about them, there's a few things they're not. They're not wealthy, they're not well connected. In fact, They're ordered to travel to another part of the country. And when they get there, they are so not wealthy and so not connected, they actually end up having to crash in a barn. Mary has to give birth to her first child in a barn where animals hang out. And the first cradle for Jesus is a feed trough. Can you imagine? I mean, can you imagine? If I'm Joseph, I'm real tempted to feel like a failure as a husband and a father. Oh, my God. I can only imagine you. is eight months pregnant. If we end up along the side of the road or in a barn, I would feel like, man, Brad, you're really blowing it as a husband and a father. Humble. So incredibly humble. The shepherds. Now, we don't think about this very much. There's not a ton of shepherds outside of Philadelphia on the hillsides, right? It's a different time, a different culture. But shepherds were not well regarded. Did you know this? This is kind of fun. I mean, they were considered... I read this guy says, as a class, shepherds had a bad reputation. More regrettable was their habit of confusing, quote, mine with, quote, thine as they moved about the country. Uh, They were considered unreliable and were not allowed to give testimony in the law courts. They were scoundrels and ruffians, the Han Solos of the ancient world, except not necessarily with the heart of gold. They didn't have much privilege. They didn't have much status. They couldn't testify in court, and they are the ones who are favored in this story. Yeah? Yeah? Mary and Joseph, these poor, poor people in a barn, not even their barn, just crashing, squatting. And then troublemakers, poor shepherds. These are the people that God chooses to change history, to make his entrance. These are the people he favors. These are the people on whom his favor rests the humble. Peace. The kind of peace that we need is available to those on whom his favor rests the humble. Guys, let's just be honest. I don't really want to be humble. You know, I've got some things in my life I've been trying to change for over five years. I would just like those to disappear. I want to be done with that. I, I want to have it all together. I, want, I don't want to have any needs. But when I read stories like this, it gives me hope that my need is actually the very thing that can connect me with Jesus and his favor. Humility isn't just about living on the edge of society, making do in a barn, or being discounted by everyone because of what you do for a living. And that might be your experience, and that's very real, and that's what we see in the story. But it's not just that. And if times are tight for you this Christmas, you certainly can relate to Mary and Joseph. But humility, I think, is also about what direction you run when you are in need and when you have plenty. Mary said yes to the angel last week. And the shepherds we read about today, this is what they do. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem. And see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off. They hurried off. They ran to see. Let's just do a little exercise. You game for something a little bit different today? I want you to use your imagination this morning. What I'm going to do is have you pretend to be in this story. And specifically, I want to put you in the place of the shepherds. Because they're one of the heroes of this story, unexpected heroes. And um, let me just sort of talk you through a little bit of a guided meditation, if you will, a little imagination exercise. So here's what I want you to do. I don't want you to fall asleep, but I do want you to close your eyes, okay? And what I want you to imagine is it's night. The weather's kind of like it is today. It's about 55 degrees, maybe, maybe a little misty and you're on the hillside trying to stay awake. All your sheep are out in the valley below you. And just feel it. Feel the breeze. Hear the sheep. Let it be quiet. When all of a sudden, just as you're feeling maybe a little relaxed, this giant being of light appears. You almost soil yourself. This isn't normal, this isn't what you expect, and it's terrifying. And you just sit with that. And the angel may not even speak out loud May just directly to your heart or your mind, or maybe you hear it audibly. But the angel says, Don't be afraid. And as he says that, you begin to feel some peace. The story goes on. Eventually you look around that angel, and there are thousands in the sky behind. And then that angel turns specifically to you and asks you, where do you need peace? Now when you're asked that question, how does your heart respond? Are you okay with how things are? Or does your heart skip a beat at the possibility of change? In that moment, without judging yourself, do you feel threatened or thankful? And after you've sat in that space for a little bit, the thousands of angels are gone. There's just one left. And the angel leaves you with these parting words, peace awaits those who follow. And without judging yourself, do you want to follow? Or are you glad the angel is gone? Now, that little exercise is just to try and help us get a pulse on where our hearts are. If our hearts are inclined towards the offer of peace, towards the offer of following, towards thankfulness rather than threat, that's a good sign that our hearts are in a humble place. Now, if our hearts aren't there, it doesn't necessarily mean that we're proud, but it could mean that. It could mean a lot of other things, too. There's no judgment meant for that, but it's a sign to take note of the condition of your spirit, of your heart. Are you ready for peace, or do you feel more comfortable being stressed? And if peace comes through following Jesus, that's an important question to answer. So, as you're waking up from your hillside experience, let's look at one more famous headline that we've all heard before. Do not be afraid. Now, that is certainly just a very practical thing when you're faced with a being of immense power and light. I think we all would be afraid. In fact, I don't know if there's a story in the Bible where an angel appears and it's obvious that it's an angel that people weren't petrified. That's an overwhelming experience. But you'll notice in verse 10, it says the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And I think this is a really good place to wrap up our Advent sermon series. You know, we've spent this series talking about the good news of Advent. We've looked at all sorts of opportunities that God has laying before us. But none of these opportunities can be capitalized on if we're afraid. Fear is the one thing that can keep us from pursuing God, that can keep us tight-fisted instead of generous, afraid that we won't have enough, or keep us isolated from loving other people. So what I'd like to leave you with before Christmas is how... It used to be translated, because I love it, fear not. But just as peace on earth is connected to moving toward God, so too fear, or fear not, I should say, is connected to something tangible. The angel said, said, do not be afraid. Why? Because I bring you good news. Now, here... The word that means good news—I told you I was going to throw down some Greek on you—is the word gospel. You've probably heard that before. Gospel was a Roman term that was used to announce something good that had actually happened. So when Augustus won a battle, the gospel would be announced. Hey, good news! Augustus kicks some tail. Yay! Let's celebrate. It it announced an event that had happened, not a philosophy. Not an idea. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, is not a philosophy. It's not an idea. It's not a perspective. It's an event that happened. That's what the gospel is. Think about it. It would be very weird if I blew a trumple. Trumple. That would be really weird. If I blew a trumpet, gathered everyone around, and then shouted out some pithy saying like, Hey, everybody, a stitch in time saves nine. Woo! that would be weird just as it was right then (laughs) because it's a philosophy it's an approach to life it's a saying to know none of which is the gospel the gospel is something that happened the gospel is that a child was born and the point i'm making here is the reason we have not to fear this christmas or ever is not that we have a great approach to life it's not that we have a philosophy that best, all the best philosophies in the world. Our reason not to fear is that an event took place that Jesus, the Savior, was actually born. Luke's the author of our text today. This is from the gospel of Luke, the good news of Luke. The whole story, according to Luke, is about events that happened. I'm not saying he doesn't have any perspectives and that theology doesn't come into the way that Luke tells the story, but He says this in chapter one of his telling of the life of Jesus. He says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us from those who were the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to write it in an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you've been taught. Luke points out, that his story, his account of the life of Jesus is an account of things that were reported by eyewitnesses so that the reader may have some certainty. Luke doesn't try at first to write a book of philosophies. He writes a book of happenings, things that happened. He writes a gospel. And he writes it in a way that should give you a little extra encouragement. So for example, he tells a story of a king who was born and put in a feed trough. Who the first witnesses were shepherds that can't testify in court, but were the first ones to tell you, hey, you should believe that this actually happened. chooses things that no one who wanted someone to actually believe the story would ever choose happenings accounts so we may fear not because luke would say what you've heard is true a savior has come an event has happened god has actually proved to be in control i told you maybe i meant to i don't remember said i think this whole story is about who's the boss <coughs> who's in control all these announcements point to, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> that God has proven his control. <coughs> Even the way the story is set up, first thing they mention is Caesar Augustus, maybe the most powerful king the world has ever seen. <coughs> My apologies, tis the season. What I'm trying to say is (coughs) Caesar Augustus thinks he's in control. He can make one order, (coughs) one order in everyone in his kingdom. Everyone in the empire has to move. They all have to go to their town to be registered. One word from Caesar. The funny thing that I'm sure nobody thought about at the time Was that there was a prophecy in the Old Testament about about where the Messiah would come from? Messiah would come out of Bethlehem. So Caesar makes this decree, which makes Jesus' whole family go to Bethlehem, where he's born. Another way to look at that is well, maybe Caesar Augustus was just a pawn. And he thought he was moving the pawns around his kingdom so that he could get the tax rolls ready. And really, maybe God was like, hmm, maybe you need more tax money. Why don't you issue this decree and make everyone go to their home? And oh, by the way, that includes Jesus and his family. And Jesus, who would have been born in Nazareth, is born in Bethlehem. And it's not a trip you're going to just decide to make as tourists with an eight-month pregnant wife fear not God is working everything he's bringing salvation he's bringing renewal he's in control of everything doesn't mean there's no dark points to the story of the life of Jesus or his birth if you read the whole story there's some pretty terrifically terrible things that happen in Bethlehem but he's working it all, redeeming it all into something that's beautiful That speaks of salvation and renewal and even though right now there's no room in the end and you feel like you're sleeping with the animals even though you're considered an outcast and a ruffian even though you're poor even though everything in your life isn't working out maybe everything is and that's the worst thing ever because now you're miserable and empty and even though you lost your job, even though you're struggling to find work, even though a relationship ended, even though you find yourself hopelessly in debt, even though it's been the hardest year of your life, fear not. God is working to renew and save everything. And we can have hope, hope that pays off because of the good news that God sent a Savior, that it happened. And now his peace is available to those who run after him. Fear not. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this season. And we pray during this season that we could connect to something bigger than the best that we can do. The best that we can do to feel good about life. The best that we can do to have a happy holiday, the best that we can do to make it work with our family. We connect today and again this whole season with something bigger, with a Savior. We turn our hearts to you. We run after you. We humble ourselves to say we need that, and it's bigger than anyone in this room. Amen.